All right, you can grab a Bible and go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, I appreciate Pastor Jonathan giving me the, the chance to preach uh, this morning. Um, I was thinking this morning, I'm pretty sure the last time that I was preaching uh, in here on a Sunday was when I was preaching from a stool. So this is way better. Um, so uh, keep keep praying for uh, for Pastor Jonathan and uh, Logan Malloy and Garrett Knight. Um, they are currently on their way back from from Togo, so pray that they uh, continue to have uh, safe travels. Um, but this morning we're looking at Second uh, Samuel seven. Uh, we uh, have been walking through the the life of David uh, mainly in First and Second Samuel. Um, and keep in mind that. Um, uh, with first and second Samuel, it was it was originally one book, right? So it's it's split into part one and part two in our Bibles, but it's really all one continuous story. But when you get to Second Samuel seven, you find one of the most significant chapters, not just in the book of Samuel, but one of the most significant chapters in the entire Bible, right? Now, obviously, every part of the Bible is important, right? It's all the inerrant, inspired Word of God, and so it, it's all there for a reason, and it's all important. But think about like whenever you watch a movie, right? So every scene and every line in that movie, it's all there on purpose for a reason, right? But there are certain key moments that are especially significant, right? There are a few key turning points that define the course of the movie, right? So even though there are key moments, they're all still tied together by all the other moments, right? So every moment's important. We have certain moments that are especially significant. Same thing if you think about like sports highlights, right? So two years ago, uh, the Atlanta Braves won uh, the World Series. Hopefully, another one uh, this October. Um, but after that happened, I I went back and I watched like an ungodly number of of Braves playoff highlight videos. Like I, my my YouTube history for like two weeks straight was just Braves playoff highlights. Like it was embarrassing. Um, but. It, not every moment makes it into a highlight video, right? Because then it's no longer a highlight video, right? That's what makes it highlights, right? There are certain key moments that make it into a highlight video, even though all the other moments in between are important. It all ties it all together, right? For every highlight moment you have, you have a thousand low light moments that tie it all together, right? Well, if you made a highlight video of the Bible, okay, I'm pretty sure that you would find 2 Samuel 7 in the highlight video. As a matter of fact, I would probably argue that you'd probably be more likely to find this chapter in a highlight video of the Bible. You'd probably be more likely to find this chapter there than the chapter where David kills Goliath. Because this moment defines the trajectory for the rest of the Bible. Like, the rest of this is all affected by what happens in this chapter. Okay, So if we, if we don't grasp what's going on in this chapter, we're going to miss out on some really important stuff throughout the rest of the, of the storyline of the Bible. Okay? But before we get to that, remember how we got here. So in the story so far, Saul's been dead for about eight years or so at this point. Uh, David has, has been king, but he's had to kind of struggle to, to unite, the, unite the kingdom together. He, he conquers Jerusalem and makes it the new capital city to kind of unify the nation. And last week in chapter 6, we saw what was kind of a coronation ceremony. So if you think about what a, what a coronation is, it's where you crown a new king or queen, right? England just did this a couple months ago. I'm sure the rest of you, just like me, were super invested in that, right? I was, like, really looking forward to that, uh, really paying attention. Um, but, like, a coronation is where you, where you crown a new, a new king or queen, right? Well, chapter 6, in a way, was almost like a coronation ceremony, but not for David. 
in a way, it's a coronation of God, right? If you remember what happened, the, the Ark of the Covenant comes in, which represents God's presence, so they bring it into Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't mean that they're making God king over the people. What it means is they're simply acknowledging what's already true. They're just acknowledging that God already is the rightful king over his people. As a matter of fact, there are several times in this book where you'll see God refer to David as the prince over his people Israel. Because the rightful king is actually God, right? So David, he has this coronation ceremony of sorts, if you will, where what we saw last week is he simultaneously sees the massive holiness of God and the massive grace of God in a completely fresh way, right? And he, so he's coming into a place of true, unashamed worship of God, but he still has more to learn about God's nature and about God's goodness, okay? Because this morning, David is going to have some more plans for God, and God's going to take those plans and flip them completely upside down. Right? So we're, what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to kind of walk through the chapter and we're going to kind of unpack it as we go. Okay, so start off in chapter 7, start off in verse 1. It says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest, over all, rest from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said this to the king, Go and do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay, so right off the bat, we see the the first thing here, we see David's plan for God. So in verse 1, it says that that David has rest from his enemies. So think about all the chaos that's that's led up to this, right? So after, after running from Saul, finally getting the throne, spending another eight years trying to unite the kingdom, especially like making a new political capital in Jerusalem and then bringing the Ark of the Covenant in there so that Jerusalem isn't just the political capital, it's also the worship capital of the nation, and then making sure that all his surrounding enemies are subdued and not threatening them anymore. Like all that's happened, and now finally, David can rest. Right? He finally has some rest. He can finally breathe. He can kind of slump down in his throne a little bit. Right? He can kind of chill, grab something cold to drink, watch some Netflix, right? whatever. Like God's finally given him some rest. And David gets an idea. Right? So at this time, in ancient times, it was common practice for powerful kings to build these big, beautiful temples to the gods that they worshipped. Right? So that was a way for them to, to show gratitude to their so-called God, but also a way for them to, to try and earn favor with that God. Okay? So David wants to build a, a temple for God. Right? So he's like, hey, look, I'm, I'm living in this like, nice, big, expensive palace, and the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, it's still out there in that like, tabernacle tent thing. If you remember, the tabernacle is what Moses built hundreds of years earlier. It was the, the, this tent thing that, that God told Moses to build, and it, it, it housed the Ark of the Covenant. right? And so the, the Ark is still in that at this point. So right here, David wanted to do something that in his day was common for a king to do for their God. But David's God is anything but common. right? Anybody ever, ever come up with, with your own plan for God? Anybody ever done that? I've done that, right? You go to God and you're like, God, I know what we should do. I have a plan. And he's, he's like, that's interesting. What's your resume again? Right? Like, oh, you mean like you've never, you know, created a universe before? You mean, you mean your, your skill sets don't include being all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-good, totally sovereign, and setting your plans before the beginning of time and then working nonstop to accomplish all those plans throughout all human history? You mean that's not on your resume? Right? Okay, good news. I've actually done that. Like, I have some previous work experience in this area. Like, believe it or not, I actually know what I'm doing, right? And it's like, we know that cognitively, right? But how many times do we have this plan that we think God should follow? 
right? Now, on the other side, don't get me wrong, it's good to have Christ-centered ambition and drive, right? Sometimes we can swing to, to the other end of the spectrum where we just get too passive, and we just kind of sit around passively just waiting for God to open a door, when sometimes what we need to do is just start getting busy jiggling doorknobs, and God will unlock one of them, right? But sometimes we can come up with our own plans, even with good intentions, and we want God to come and be part of what we're doing, and instead, God's saying, come be part of what I'm doing, right? So David has, the, has this plan for God that he's going to build a nice big temple, but God's about to flip that upside down. Look at verse 4. It says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David, he has this plan, and he tells the prophet Nathan. And at first, Nathan thought it was a great idea. He's like, sounds good to me. But then later that night, God tells Nathan, he's like, no, 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 I need you to go back and tell David that I have a different plan. Okay? Sometimes we're pursuing something that seems good, seems God-honoring, and God says no. Anybody ever had that happen before? Right? It doesn't make sense at first. You're doing something to serve God, and he closes a door on it. Right? It's okay when that happens. Right? It doesn't mean that we have to... We don't have to have it all figured out when that happens. What we, all we have to do is trust that God has it all figured out. And if he closed a door on something good, that means he's going to open a door on something better. Right? And he's about, he's about to give something, David, something to David that's way better than what David has in mind right here. But for, before we even get to that, first, God gives David a couple reasons why he doesn't want a temple right now. Right? Later on, we're going to see that David's son is going to build a temple for God. But God doesn't, doesn't want it yet. Right? Now, if you, if you go over to, to 1 Chronicles 22, God gives a couple additional reasons why he doesn't want a temple right now. But we're just going to look at the, at the ones that God gives in this chapter. Okay? So first of all, God's like, um, I don't need it. Right? Like, I, don't, I don't need a temple. Right? He's like... He's like, really, David? You know I own the universe, right? Like, you think I need a house? Like, like I've, been, I've been traveling with my people in a tent for a few hundred years now. Like, I'm, I'm okay. Like, thanks, but no thanks, right? Listen, God doesn't need us. Which makes it even more incredible that he chooses us. He's given himself to us in a way that there's, there's no way that we could pay him back. That is a loving God. As soon as anybody starts talking about God in a way where he needs us or needs something from us, they have started to talk about a weak God and an unloving God. Amen. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were, what, offering him something? While we, while we had something that, that he needed? No. While we were sinners, helpless and on our way to hell, unable to offer God anything, that's when Christ died for us. So that's the first reason. God's like, I don't, I don't need this thing from you, okay? But number two, the other reason God doesn't want a temple right now is because God wants to be incarnational. And what does that mean? Incarnate means in flesh. So when we say that God is incarnational, we're talking about God becoming flesh, where he's choosing to dwell with his people in a way where they can experience him, right? So the tabernacle was God choosing to dwell with his people in an incarnational way. It was God saying, I'm coming to be with my people in a holy but humble way because they can't make it to me. And God ultimately does this with sending Jesus to literally be God in flesh. As a matter of fact, 
John 1.14 says this. It says, The Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the word for dwelt right there, it literally means tent or tabernacle. So it literally is saying Jesus became flesh and tented or tabernacled among us. So when David says, well, you know, God's just out there living in that tent thing out there. God's like, yeah, exactly. That's the point. God's showing that he's not a God who waits for us to come to him. He's a God who comes to us. Now look down at verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince, there's that word again, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Okay, so God's, God's telling David, I've been doing all the work in your life, and I'm going to continue to be the one doing the work in your life. Like, I, you don't have to come here and try and earn my favor, right? God's been doing all the work in David's life up to this point, and he's not stopping. Then look at the rest of verse 9. It says, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. Okay, so at this point, this is the point where, where this starts turning into a highlight in this chapter. Okay? God says, I will make for you a great name. There's only one person prior to this in the Bible where God says this to, where he says, I'm going to make for you a great name. The only person before David where God says that is to Abraham, David's great, 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 great granddaddy, right? So if you go back to Genesis, after, after humans built the, the Tower of Babel, what they, when they built the Tower of Babel, what they said was, we're going to make a name for ourselves, and after they do that, God, God picks this messed up dude named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make a great name for you. I'm going to make you a great name. And now God's saying the same thing to David, right? So back in Genesis, God had made a covenant with Abraham. Later, he made a covenant with the whole nation of Israel. And he's been faithful to those covenants, even when his people have been completely unfaithful. And now God's about to make another covenant with David. Now, why, why are these such a big deal? Why are these covenants, why do they matter? Why are they a big deal? It's because they're tracing the line of God's plan through humanity to save, to save humanity through a Savior. It's tracing his, line, his, his gospel line of salvation. Right? So way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised that he would send a Savior to fix the sin problem. And then he tells Abraham, I'm using you to do that. And then he tells Israel, I'm using you to do that. Now he's telling David, I'm using you to do that. Like my gospel plan is continuing through you. And so God's continuing through David what he promised to Adam and Eve and to Abraham and to Israel. And it's going to define the trajectory for the rest of the Bible. Okay? So we already saw David's plan for God. Now we see God's plan for David. Look at verse 10. It says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, if you're paying attention, you might be wondering why God's making these specific promises. Right? Like, he's promising that he's going he's gonna to give Israel a place to, to live, and he's going to give David rest from his enemies. You might be thinking, didn't they already have that? Right? Like at this point in the story, it, Israel has their own land, right? Didn't we literally just read in verse 1 that, that God already gave David rest from his enemies? If that's the case, why is God saying this as though he's going to do it in the future? The reason is because the land that Israel's living in right here isn't ultimate. The rest that David's experiencing right here isn't ultimate. It's a picture of something greater. 
Because when you keep reading the Bible, you find out that the Israelites don't keep this land. They don't continue in this peace and rest. They get conquered and exiled. What David's experiencing at this point is a taste of what Jesus will one day fully accomplish. One day, every person who's put their faith in Jesus will live in a place with him where there'll be total satisfaction, total rest, where everything is as it should be. That's the land that God's talking about. That's the peace that God's talking about. Keep going in verse 11. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever from before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so there's a ton packed into these verses right here. So first of all, God tells David, he says, David, I'm going to make you a house. Okay? Now, if you remember, we just read David's living in this nice big house, right? So, like, what's God talking about? Is God talking about, like, coming in and doing, like, extreme home makeover, like, a Chip and Joanna Gaines thing, like, re- like doing a whole renovation? Like, hey, let's do away with the stone. We're going to put up some shiplap over here. Like, wh- like, what's God talking about, right? God's not talking about a literal house. When you keep going in these verses, you find out that the house he's talking about, the house is an analogy for a kingly dynasty. I don't think that was me. Maybe I just shouldn't move. Anyway. Sorry, I have ADD sometimes. Uh, so the, the house that God's talking about right here is, is a kingly dynasty. It's not an actual literal house, right? If you remember, Saul, his dynasty lasted for one king. Like, not much of a dynasty, right? But God tells David, your dynasty is going to last forever. It's not going to stop. Then look down at verse 12 again. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. So after David dies, God's going to raise up his offspring to be an established king. Now, who's the offspring that he's talking about? Well, there are actually two answers. Okay? And this is a part where we, where we need to time out and remember something about prophecies in the Bible. Because what, what God's giving David right here is a prophecy. Right? So a lot of times in the Bible, a prophecy will have an immediate fulfillment in the short term and then an ultimate fulfillment in the long term. Okay, so let me let me use a visual that helps me understand this. Okay, so a couple of years ago, um, I went sea kayaking in the Everglades with with a group of people, and we if you've been to the Everglades before, there's a ton of islands down there, and so basically we would uh, spend each day kayaking to another island where we would uh, camp out for the night, and uh, there were some days where we'd have to have to paddle as much as like seven or eight miles to get to to the next island we were going to. Well, when you're that far out. You look out where you're going, and there, there, there might be four or five different islands out there. You might have one up here, and then one back here, and then another over here, or whatever. Well, when you're that far out, you look out there, and it just looks like one big landmass. Right? It, it looks like it's just one big island. Right? It's not until you get up closer that you realize that they're separate islands. And you start to realize, okay, there's one up here closer, and then there's another one further back. Right? That's the way that a lot of, of prophecies in the Bible work. When God initially says it... It looks like it's just one thing that he's talking about. But it's not until you get down the road and you keep reading the Bible a little bit and you get closer that you realize 
that God's talking about multiple things. He's talking about something that's closer and more immediate and also about something that's later and more ultimate. So there's a partial fulfillment in the short term and a more complete fulfillment in the long term. Okay, so how does that apply to this prophecy? Okay, who's this offspring from David? Well, the answer in the immediate short term is that God's talking about David's son Solomon, who's going to be the next king of Israel, right? But God's going to have, or David's later going to have a great, great, great grandson later on, who's going to be a greater king. Okay, so this prophecy is partially about Solomon, but it's more fully about Jesus. So even though Solomon is David's son, this prophecy is not pointing to Solomon. It's pointing through Solomon to Jesus. Okay? So in what ways is this prophecy about Solomon? And in what ways is it about, is it about Jesus? Well, both Solomon and Jesus, obviously, are sons or descendants of David. Solomon becomes king over Israel. Jesus is ultimately king over everything. But Solomon's kingdom was also known for being the most peaceful and most prosperous period in all of Jewish history. Okay? Now, that period eventually went away, but it, it was pointing forward. Solomon's kingdom was pointing forward to something that Jesus would one day accomplish, when Jesus would bring a kingdom of eternal peace and prosperity. Okay? Then look down at verse 13 again. It says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So while, while, David tells, or while God tells David that he won't build a house or a temple, he says that his son is going to build a house for God. Okay? So Solomon, after this, is going to build an actual physical temple for God. But Jesus builds something greater. Jesus builds the church, the spiritual temple. Right? Like, we are now God's temple. That's what the New Testament tells us. Like, God's presence doesn't dwell in a building anymore. This is just a building. The temple is us, right? God's presence dwells in us as his spiritual temple. Okay? Then look at verse 14. God says, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So God's going to have a, a father-son relationship with Solomon the same way that he, that he uh, did with, with David. Ultimately, though, we know that Jesus is truly the son of God, right? But then look at the last part of verse 14. It says, when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So this is where the, the prophecy starts to separate a little bit between Solomon and Jesus, right? Solomon was a sinner just like us, right? As a matter of fact, when you read about his life, Solomon literally does all of the specific things that God said an Israelite king shouldn't do. Every single one of them, Solomon does. And later on, he has to pay the consequences for, for those actions like God's talking about right here, right? But did Jesus have any sin? No. But was Jesus disciplined with rods like this verse is talking about? Did he receive stripes for sin? Yeah. Jesus and Solomon were both disciplined and punished. But Jesus was punished for our sin, not his own. When you keep going in verses 15 and 16, it says that even in the midst of that discipline, God's love won't depart from David's son the way that it departed from Saul. And then he says that his throne is going to last forever. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, like I said, th this chapter sets the trajectory for the rest of the Bible. Because the question going forward from here is going to be, who's this son of David? Now, we obviously already know the answer. It's Jesus. But David didn't know that. The other Jews at the time didn't know that. So when, think about whenever Solomon comes along. Think about if you're a Jew living, living in Israel whenever, whenever Solomon comes along. And everything he starts doing, he, he starts making Israel filthy rich. He brings like unprecedented peace and prosperity. He makes Israel essentially into a world power at the time. 
And so everybody must have been thinking like, hey, Solomon is the son of David that God was talking about, right? He's the one that God promised was going to make everything right. But then they find out that Solomon is just as messed up as they are. He was the wisest man who ever lived, possibly the richest man who ever lived. He was one of the most effective leaders and rulers who ever lived. And he got to the end of his life and he said, it's all meaningless. Go read Ecclesiastes. He says, I wasted my life. He says, I chased every pleasure, every goal that you could possibly achieve. I got all of it and it left me completely empty. And after Solomon died, the kingdom splits. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So all, all this work that David poured into uniting the kingdom together, it's, it all goes down the drain within one generation. And so God's people at that point are left wondering, well, if Solomon wasn't our savior, who could it be? And you have king after king after king come and go. Some of them are better than others, but all of them fall short. And when you read about them, all of them are compared back to David. It's like the Jewish people are being like, is this the son of David that God was talking about? Is this him? Is this him? Is this him? One after another. But eventually, Israel's kings, David's sons, they end up leading God's people down a, down a path of sin that ends in exile. They get conquered and ripped from their homes. And so imagine if you're living at that point, right? That happens. You're literally ripped from your home, forced to live in a, in a different place. It looks like all the promises that God made to David right here, it looks, it looks like all of them are down the drain. Even whenever some of them come back later with Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back to the land and they try to rebuild. But it's never the same. They're still just as broken. And it's into that brokenness that another son of David is finally born in David's hometown. That's why the very first verse in the New Testament says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the way Matthew writes to open up the New Testament. Because the point is, Jesus is the one to fulfill the gospel promise that God made to Abraham. And Jesus is the son of David that was promised right here in 2 Samuel 7. That's why whenever Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the people are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, which means save us now, son of David. Like they realize and recognize that Jesus is the one God was talking about. He was the son of David from 2 Samuel 7. He was the, one that, he was the chosen one who was going to come and save them. Now the problem was they misunderstood what he was coming to save them from. Right? They, they thought he was going to be a military king the way David was. He was going to come in and wipe out the Roman Empire. But they didn't realize they had a far greater enemy that they needed salvation from. Jesus' mission wasn't to conquer a physical giant like David. His mission was to conquer the giant of sin that holds us captive and destines us for hell. Jesus' mission wasn't to bring temporary peace and wealth like Solomon did. Jesus' mission was to bring us permanent peace and satisfaction with God. Right? David and Solomon, go, go read about it. They, David and Solomon accomplished some like incredible, unbelievable things for Israel. But all of those accomplishments are absolute trash without the victory that Jesus accomplishes. Think about that for a second. What Jesus has accomplished for you in his death, burial, and resurrection, that is infinitely greater than all the wealth and peace and prosperity that David and Solomon accomplished for Israel. Now, at this point in the story, if you're David and God has just promised you all that, how do you think you're going to respond? God lays out this sovereign plan and, and David's just sitting there and David shows us the way that we should respond. David shows us that God's sovereign plan should lead to our surrendered praise. 
God's sovereign plan should lead to our surrendered praise. That's the last thing that we're going to see in this chapter, is David's praise to God. Look at verse 18. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is an instruction for all mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So in verse 18, David says, who am I? Which is the right response to God's goodness, right? Like we have unimaginable value in God's sight, but it's not because of anything in us. It's because of the value that God places on us. And again, that's good news. The fact that God places value on us when we have nothing to offer him, that's good news, right? So our response should be, who am I that God would do this for me? Right? When you do that, that's not talking down to yourself, right? David's not talking down to himself right now, right? That's an act of rejoicing in what God's done for us. God is accomplishing his cosmic-sized sovereign purposes and just bringing us along with it. He's just bringing us along to be part of it. Look down at verse 26. We, we could spend a ton of time unpacking this worship prayer from David, but I just want to land the plane here. Verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. This is David's ultimate goal, to magnify God's name. God had told David, he said, David, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make a great name for you. And David's response is, uh, I'm going I'm to magnify God's name. Okay? Now, there, there are two ways to, to magnify something. Okay? You can either magnify the way that a microscope magnifies, or you can magnify the way that a telescope magnifies. This is the best illustration that I've, that I've heard for explaining this idea. Right? So think about what a microscope does. A microscope takes something that's really small and makes it look way bigger than it really is. Right? A telescope takes something that's actually big but looks really small, and a telescope shows you just how massive it actually is, right? So, like, think about, like, in the night sky. Like, the stars and planets that you see, they just look like insignificant little specks, right? Like, most nights, we just kind of go about our business and never think twice about them, right? But when you take the time to magnify them through a telescope... All of a sudden, you realize just how massive and glorious and awe-inspiring they really are. So when, when David talks about magnifying God, he's not saying that God's really small and insignificant and we need to make him bigger, right? He's talking about doing what a telescope does, just showing off how massive and glorious and awe-inspiring God really is. Think about it. There are a lot of people in your life who think that God is really small and insignificant, and they need you to be a telescope, to be a lens, to show them just how massive the glory and goodness of God really is, right? Some of you sitting here think that God is really small and insignificant. You might not say that out loud, but you might be saying it through your actions and attitudes. The point isn't for people to look at Christians and say, wow, look at everything they've, they've done for God. They must really love God. The point is for people to look at Christians and say, look how much God's done for them. Be a telescope. Be the lens that people can look through to see the glory and the goodness of God. Magnify God this week. Let's pray.